0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Clear Thinking, brought to you by Better Broadhead, our town, their future. Please welcome your host, Erin Menzel. Today I'm speaking with Cody Knavel from Green County Sheriff's Office. Thank you, Cody, for joining us for this conversation today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for the uh, opportunity to have the Sheriff's Office here.
0: You're welcome. So we're going to have a little conversation about drug trends in Greene County. So first of all, can you explain to the audience kind of your law enforcement experience?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I started in the spring of 2008 with the Sheriff's Office as a patrol deputy. Uh, And since that point, uh, I've become a canine handler uh, in 2012 and still working my first dog. And I've begun to take a leadership role with the Special Weapons and Tactics team as well. So that's sort of my responsibilities as a law enforcement officer here.
0: Okay, so what, what was your interest or why were you interested in becoming a canine handler?
1: I actually grew up with German Shepherds. Uh, I had other canine handlers within the county, Dan Marish and Charlie Worm that were sort of mentors to me, worked with them a lot and really enjoyed the aspect of the job and specifically the patrol work of tracking and building searches and, and finding people that were lost and keeping officers safe.
0: And there's a lot of um, drug aspects to it, correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's with a dual-purpose dog, that's that's something that comes with it is the the drug detection for us and then also the patrol work. So that is, and the drug detection is more the majority of what we do uh, within Greene County.
0: How many searches have you done with Ike?
1: Uh, so we've had him, he went active in September of 12, and since then I think I'm up somewhere around 550 to 600 deployments with him. I averages somewhere around 100 or so a year, depending on the year.
0: Is that pretty average for counties our size?
1: I would say it's very similar, uh, especially with shift assignment and population and violent crime trends, it's it's very consistent.
0: Nice. So in your years at the Sheriff's Office and also the DNR, how has drug use changed in your perspective?
1: frequency is the biggest thing that we see and change as far as the the drug trends there's always one that may be a little bit hotter than the other Uh, marijuana has been the consistent one over the years we've seen a big spike in uh, opiate related pill use oxycodone oxycontin vicodin uh, that transitioned into heroin Uh, and then there was a big uh, methamphetamine use and I believe part of that was uh, a specific user group in the area and also a uh, better training and awareness for law enforcement to recognize those signs and then as of recently we've seen uh, a big push back into the area with cocaine.
0: That seems to be pretty consistent with some of the information I got from like Rock County and Dane as they're seeing a lot more cocaine in the area
1: absolutely and i I think when we look at drug trends we almost have to look at them on a regional basis other than a county basis and where the the main supply is coming from that area and with the interstate coming through rock county and being so close to green and us being so close to freeport rockford madison and really not that far from chicago i think we see the same drug trends that those communities see we may just see it on a little bit more of a lag time for it to get to this area
0: yeah do you think um, the legislation in Illinois is currently passing recreational marijuana use? Since our drug drug trends kind of go along the lines of Chicago and Rockford, how do you think it's gonna affect this
1: region? I don't see like that marijuana use is gonna spike in this area. I, I really don't foresee that happening. What I see is, uh, My understanding of the Illinois legislation that was passed is that out-of-state people can go there and purchase legally. It's just smaller amounts. And the awareness for them that when they cross back into the state line, it's not legalized in Wisconsin. I think there's going to be an education there. And whether it's education through enforcement or just self-awareness, it depends on on that individual person.
0: It would be nice if the DOJ put something out there just to educate people. Like Minnesota has it. also correct reparation
1: i'm unaware of that
0: i think they have medicinal anyways but it would be nice for the people to understand what they're going to deal with if they bring it back to wisconsin yeah
1: it's in it i think it almost goes on along the lines that if no change is the same so until yeah. until there's legislation passed in wisconsin it still is technically a criminal offense but most local law enforcement around here handle it as a decriminalized event went through an ordinance citation for possession right
0: okay so you mentioned um also meth when we were talking about drug trends so can you kind of explain um first of all We were like number seven or six i think in 2016 for meth labs
1: we're actually number two through drug enforcement administration to statistics
0: and that's currently right
1: that was for 2016 For 2016 okay because when i was
0: looking it was doj and they had us at like number six or something yeah but that's
1: a little yeah and I, i think a lot of that that number ranking it's nothing to be proud of, but what it is, is it's uh, awareness and training with law enforcement. And it was a couple really large cases that resulted in the, the higher amount of uh, one pot meth labs that were located and seized. So, so can you
0: explain what one pot method is? Absolutely. Because not a lot of people are aware of
1: what that is. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of information out online through department of justice through the drug enforcement administration on one pot meth labs and a one pop meth lab is essentially a at-home meth lab or a, that the majority of people have the materials to make the meth within their garage they're common household items they're items that you can pick up at big box stores such as walmart or shopco uh, and when you mix those products together in a certain way they create methamphetamine uh, they're most typically made in uh, plastic bottles uh, what we see is heavier plastic bottles so such as gatorade or smart water bottles where the plastic is, is heavier than just a simple water bottle that you buy at the gas station uh, and it's they're volatile they're dangerous and they produce methamphetamine which is highly sought after for a certain user group
0: and those one pot those are usually like just users right they're not necessarily big drug dealers from what I kind of understand.
1: That, that is more dependent on the person that's doing it. Okay. Um, I, my experience through enforcement is that usually there's one person that it has the knowledge and skill to make the methamphetamine through a one pot lab, and other people buy them the products to make it for them. So mm-hmm. they essentially at that time become a drug dealer because they're the ones that are manufacturing it and then... Kind Even of like though.
0: contract are yeah, contracted to make someone else's meth. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So th- there may not be any actual money exchanging hands like you would see in the movies, but there is some type of benefit, the uh, relationship between the two there.
0: How is the one pot method different than the other way of cooking meth? Is it more dangerous <clears throat> or less dangerous?
1: So there's. There's actually several ways of cooking methamphetamine or or producing methamphetamine. Uh, The one-pot method is just a method. Um, There's several other that uh, in later history or a few, maybe 10 years ago, we've seen a big push through the media about anhydrous Mm -hmm. um, and how people were stealing off anhydrous tanks that were parked out in farm fields or at local cooperatives. Uh, That is a different method. Uh, The one-pot is... I believe people can fly under the radar more making meth through the one pot because it is everything you could just go to the local store and pick up. And if you pick it up over time, it doesn't throw up any red flags until the point that you get those. Uh, the dangerous part of it is the chemical reaction. And that even though they've made the one pot, collected the meth from it, and then threw the one pot off in the ditch or off in a roadside or, or in a fire pit, it can be reactivated through the movement, uh, much like some chemistry experiment. If you shake that, it will reactivate, and essentially the term is a rolling lab at that point. Okay,
0: so how would someone identify a one pot that someone is making meth in that that method?
1: So th- we get that question quite a bit, especially in the spring of the year when the the uh, groups go out for roadside cleanup. How can I tell my people what what to look for? Now, the best thing that we suggest is that if you find a, a plastic bottle, a clear plastic bottle that has some type of uh, white residue or granule white residue that may have black flakes in it, which is part of the process, um, or the top has a hole drilled in it with a tube coming out of it, most likely that is related to the manufacture of methamphetamine. Uh, we urge people not to touch those things, contact local law enforcement immediately for somebody to properly identify that, and then... Uh, collect it and dispose of it appropriately as well because it's handled as a hazardous material at that time
0: and that um, Handling of it is quite complicated, isn't it to deactivate it and then
1: It is very complicated and actually uh, common law enforcement including myself are don't have the training to do it uh, that is something that we if I were to respond to a scene where it's a possible meth lab, I have enough training to identify it, but then we contact Department of Justice uh, Division of Criminal Investigation and they send a special agent down uh, to confirm it and they contact a hazardous material contractor that is uh, contracted through the Drug Enforcement Administration to respond and clean that up appropriately. So, these. To find a bottle on a roadside or something, you know, most people would think that it could be handled in a fairly short time period, but because of the seriousness and the dangerousness of it, on average, that's a six to 12 hour call for us just because of where we're located. The good part about that is uh, Department of Justice has worked with training local law enforcement. We actually have a deputy on staff that went through the training uh, to handle those and be essentially a site safety to start that process. Uh, It's a really good program through the Department of Justice that we took advantage of. The
0: Klan lab, right? It is. It is. It's a
1: form of the the clandestine lab cleanup team, so just on a smaller scale.
0: Right. Okay. Um, So, what kind of dangers are there associated with meth? Now, you said that it's also kind of explosive, but what about the chemicals that are released
1: from that? So that there's. There's two main dangers to it. The the most imminent one is when the lab is active is the overpressure from the gases can cause the uh, bottle to expand and eventually explode. And one of the products in it uh, is the lithium battery strips. And when that hits water, it immediately turns to fire. So then that's where you see a, a fireball created from that. So that's the most imminent danger the gases when uh when it off gases that affects respiratory significantly uh and to the point that it can hospitalize somebody fairly rapidly
0: and it has a pretty unique smell right like even people who are cooking it there's like a chemical smell coming from them
1: yes yes from the the contacts that i've had in these type of cases people that cook for an extended amount of time or actually use one you know methamphetamine for a long time you they have a chemical smell of their of their person it's it's not like any perfume or cologne that you'd ever want to buy in a store but it's 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 a very uh, distinctive smell when you come in contact with them
0: is that something that law enforcement would want to know if someone has like that chemically smell from them and you someone suspects that they are you know cooking meth
1: I think that's one, one of many signs, you okay. know, that alone, there's so many other things that, that that could be attributed to, but if that along with um, rapid weight loss over a short period of time, open sores, uh, just the, the common signs that we see of methamphetamine use or drug use, I think you put that all together in the totality. That is definitely something that it's good for local law enforcement to know to either provide that person more attention attention through our treatment programs and through our human services group or through uh, medical, the hospital, or through enforcement action if necessary.
0: Okay. And if someone had a tip for the sheriff's office or any of the local PDs, who would they contact?
1: I think the most, the, uh, the best place to probably provide a tip is through our Crime Stoppers line. Uh, it allows people that may be a little hesitant to be 100% anonymous, right. provide that information. And it also allows for a back and forth between the deputy that administers that Crime Stoppers line to have a conversation if they need a little bit more clarifying information or if the information provided just didn't paint the picture of what really we need to focus our efforts on. That would be the best. Uh, the next one I would say is just contact the local agency, whether it's the sheriff's office or if you live in a municipality, that police department, uh, and they'll they'll work that information to the point if they can do it themselves or they'll call in assistance through such as uh, the state line area narcotics team or if it's close to Rock County Special Investigations Unit. Right.
0: So um, I think... Crime Stoppers has a Facebook page now, right? Yes, I did see that. And then they do have P3, an app that you can download and then anonymously um, send in your tips. So um, what do you think, drug trend-wise, is really, I guess, the most prevalent trend right now for youth? Like, let's say 18 to 12. What do you think that that age group is really engaged in?
1: I think, I don't think it's really changed over the years. I think marijuana is the most common. It's the, it's an entry level drug that, uh, relatively has been perceived as low risk. Um, we've seen maybe an increase in the variety of marijuana, whether it's vape pens or, or oils or edibles. Um, but that is probably the most common. The second one would be, uh, prescription pill abuse and misuse of those and that's probably more of a trend in in an upward swing than marijuana marijuana has been pretty steady throughout the years yeah
0: Uh, what do you think is contributing to prescription drug use going up
1: i think the medical field has done a really good job as far as uh, providing doctors information on how how to issue prescriptions better and, you know, be more aware of people that are looking for the pain pill prescriptions right. and not actually in need of them. I think there is uh, maybe a common misbelief that they will treat, you know, when we talk about opiate-related prescription pills, that they will treat any pain or discomfort that a, a young adult would have. And then there's also the trend with Adderall
0: oh, yeah. You know,
1: that, that provides more focus. Or what is believed more focused during the testing you know you see that more on university campuses some upper level you know high school students uh, but that is that's very widely abused as well
0: yeah do you think uh, have you seen an uptick in edibles for marijuana use or is it more of vaping and the dab pins and stuff like that
1: the the biggest I uptick would be in the vaping and the oils. Um, the edibles, they're here. Right. Um, we'll see them come and go. Uh, a lot of it is obviously with the states that have legalized marijuana and what they're using those edibles for is trying to get them, you know, the people that try to get them to Wisconsin, but they're here and they don't last long. What's, what is here is, is the, the dabs, essentially, and the oil that, that they're using that's higher concentration.
0: Can you explain what that looks like? Because I, I think a lot of parents don't really understand what that physically looks like.
1: Absolutely. Uh, the the best way to describe it is it looks it's typically kept in a rubber-type container that contains the moisture of the actual oil, uh, and it almost looks like a wax, or uh, it's dried, so they would take the oil and put it on a piece of parchment paper, and it would dry as a dot, and then they heat that back up in a bong or what's a forth to inhale it Um, it can be anywhere from bright green to dark brown in color depending on the moisture level in it it could look um, the consistency of play-doh or a little bit wetter to uh, maybe dried molasses on a sheet of paper it's they're very inconsistent depending on the product and what it's marketed for in the, the legal realm uh, in the states where it's legal as what the appearance is. The one thing that is very consistent with it is the the smell of marijuana. Okay. that that does not leave it. It still smells like marijuana no matter what the appearance is.
0: So is it coming from the states where it's recreationally legalized, do you think, or is it?
1: With most recent cases that I've been involved in, that's the the packaging and the labeling that comes on these. You know, they're very professionally done, they're marketed that way, and that's, they are coming from those states. And it's the, the people here that are selling and distributing those have some form of a contact or make that trip to get those here. And that's something that uh, our state line area narcotics team works closely with the postal inspector to intercept those packages coming through the mail and then builds up any other cases if we can work with any other courier services to try to stop those before they come.
0: Are they usually coming in the mail, or do you think people are transporting it themselves across state lines?
1: I would say it happens both ways. Um, with the number of law enforcement and the distance that you'd have to travel from legalized states up until Illinois, um, it, I would say that's a significant riskier um, right. venture to to cut across the countryside to transport drugs back because once you leave those states most of the states are still like Wisconsin mm-hmm. uh, whereas if you could get it to go through a courier service and attempt to blend it with another package uh, that that may be the easier feat at that time
0: interesting how how many cases if you can say have you experienced that they were they're mailing
1: the marijuana I wouldn't even be able to put a number no. on it to, to it's they're so spread out and yeah. that's the that's the nice part about my current job assignment is there's no consistency to what I do on yeah. a daily basis. So for me to put numbers to it I'd actually have to go back through the record system. Yeah. Um, it, they're enough that they're noteworthy, but not enough that I'm starting to keep, you know, stats like this, right. this is really alarming. Yeah. And it's when we look at it, we're still a very rural County, mm-hmm. you know, we're not, we don't have a large population base, so we're not seeing it near as, near as frequently as say my counterparts in Madison, right. their canine handlers are, are very consistently helping out the postal inspector for partial sniffs. Interesting.
0: And do they always have local canines come in and do, or do they have like their own like, The.
1: From my experience the postal inspector always uses a local okay and a lot of it depends where that package is intercepted at and where its destination is is what canine and that's you know i think the end goal there is is to try to stop it and who's who's police canine actually finds it in this the big hoopla that surrounds that is the the, the secondary thing to it it's oh. just to try to intercept it and right. if they get a, a package in madison that's coming down to judah so be it you know madison dogs found it if i happen to right. find it when it comes to Monroe that it's
0: it just ha- wherever yeah. it happens to be absolutely found. okay interesting i don't think a lot of people know that the postal inspector is like
1: checking yeah he's, out packages. he's a very busy man
0: yeah that's really cool um, I think that that's pretty much covering all that we wanted to talk about in drug trends unless there's anything else that you can think of that people should know about. or.
1: Not, not no. that I'm aware of. The best thing is just awareness and knowledge and there's there's a lot of resources out there online that yeah. can help people with that. And if they have questions, the best thing is if they see a, an officer or a deputy, just to ask. Have, right. have that genuine conversation because most are willing to do that education and just answer questions that's what we're here for right
0: yeah most of them have you know a lot of good knowledge and some experience with (laughs) different kinds of drugs. but yeah um and have the time too it's not like um police officers aren't willing to talk to people no i think that's a misconception as well
1: absolutely we are part of the community for a reason
0: yeah well thank you again cody i appreciate your time thank you Thank you for listening to another episode of Clear Thinking, brought to you by Better Broadhead. To stay up to date on the next episode, please follow us on iTunes.